0: Hey everyone, this is Brenton Powers, wishing you a Merry Christmas. Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Merry Christmas to all from the Dwell on Truth show. Hello, you're listening to The Dwell on Truth Show. I'm Brenton Powers. If you're listening on KSCO, it is 8 a.m. Time to get up and get ready for church. I hope you are blessed as you listen to The Dwell on Truth teachings through the book of Romans. Paul has been speaking about the righteous judgment of God against all kinds of sinners, both immoral and those who say they are moral, both the obvious sinner and the secret sinner. Paul is making the case that all are under sin, both Jews and Gentiles. He starts with the Gentiles, points out all their obvious sin, And certainly, we can look into the world and see lots of evil going on and say, man, that's terrible. But be careful of the self-righteousness that many of the Jews in Paul's time had. There is a way for lost, condemned sinners to receive the righteousness of God and therefore be found forgiven and justified. And my hope today, I'll tell you from the beginning, is that you will receive the righteousness of God I'm Brenton Powers. We're going to study Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 24, about if you rely on the law. What if you relied on the law? Paul's going to go through a few of the commandments to expose our need for the gospel. So let's open our Bibles and read Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 24. having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Romans chapter 2 is about Jews who are relying on the law to be justified on the day of judgment. What are you relying on to be counted righteous on Judgment Day? Are you relying upon the law or the gospel? You notice in verse 17 of Romans chapter 2 that these people were calling themselves Jews and relying upon the law and boasting in God. You know, the name Jew is either loved or hated, but generally Jews were proud of their nationality, that they were children of Judah, and Judah means praise. They were children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the chosen line. But they weren't chosen because they're better than other people. God sovereignly chose the line of Judah as the family line through which Jesus would be born. And so he did honor them and give them the law and the prophets and even his own son was born in that family. Paul speaks directly to the individual Jew and reveals the truth about what happens when you rely on the law to be righteous on judgment day. As he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. You see, if you rely on the law, it means you rely on your works to get into heaven. But the problem is, we cannot do enough good deeds to fulfill the law So it doesn't work to rely on the law. We need something stronger than the law to save us. We should appreciate what the law can do and rely on it to do that. But we should not rely on the law to do what it can't do. What can the law do and what can't it do? Well, the law can give us a moral standard, but it can't make you morally right. The law can make you accountable, but it can't correct you. The law can expose what's in your heart, but it can't change your heart. The law can reveal God's holiness, but it can't make you holy. The law can condemn us, but it can't save us. The law can show us how far we are from God, but it cannot bring us closer to God. The law can make us guilty, but it can't justify us. And in the end, the law can kill us and send us to hell, but it can't bring us back to life and bring us to heaven. But the good news according to Romans 8 verse 3 is that what the law could not do God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So it's important to understand the purpose of the law and the limitations of the law. God didn't give the law to reform society. God gave the law so that you can see how much you need Jesus. The old covenant of law is not the basis for a thriving relationship with God, but it testifies to the new covenant that is a strong foundation for this life and the one to come. And in the new covenant, God's law is not written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of your heart. So that's why God said through Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like that covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the So after struggling in their sin for more than a thousand years, the Jews should recognize the weakness in themselves. There's nothing wrong with God's law. The only weakness is in our ability to keep it. But Paul takes the time to carefully expose the heart of those who are self-confident, those who call themselves Jews but have not yet received the new covenant that God wanted to make with the house of Judah those who rely on the law but not on Jesus and God's grace, those who boast that they have God but are far from him. And he goes on to describe them in Romans chapter 2, verse 18, that they know his will and approve what is excellent because they are instructed from the law. Now this describes a lot of Christians. You know, We may feel confident that we know God's will. And it's true, the Bible does reveal what God's will is. It helps us to approve of what is good and disapprove of what is evil. And it's good to be instructed from the law. However, it's one thing to know His will, it's another thing to do it. It's one thing to approve of what is excellent, it's another thing to do it. It's one thing to be instructed from the law, it's another thing to fulfill the law. We have not always walked in the will of God or done what is excellent, or fulfilled the law. Bible knowledge itself is not enough. Listen to how confident they are in themselves. Romans 2.19 And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. That would be a good thing if they really were a guide to the blind. But are they sure they are not blind? And they say that they are a light to those who are in darkness. Surely God did choose and call the people of Judah and Israel to be a light to the world, but they failed. And ultimately, Jesus is the light of the world, the light that shines forth from Galilee, as the prophet said. He came and he shined his light. But these Jews think that they are the light to those who are in darkness. You can't teach them. See, they're really unteachable. The only light that we have as Christians is the light that we've received from Jesus and we reflect to the world. But we need more of his light. Amen, Christians? In Romans 2.20, he speaks of someone who is an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That sounds very good. It makes sense to instruct the foolish and to teach children. And we do have in the law, in the Bible, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We don't deny that. But if you're relying upon your Bible knowledge, that is not enough to save you. Paul commended the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, As he said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, but the scriptures themselves are not able to save you. It can give you wisdom, but you need to apply that wisdom and come to faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's why Paul says in verse twenty one you then who teach others do you not teach yourself so he's really speaking to people who think they understand the law but he's going to expose that they're misusing the law paul speaks about these people also in first timothy one certain persons have wandered away into empty discussion desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they are saying or about the things with which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, before the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, and for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike at their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. So there is a right and a wrong way to teach the law. We shouldn't teach it as moralism, do this so you can have eternal life, but take it a step further. Have you done it? If eternal life is based on doing, then none of us will have eternal life. Whether you've broken all of it or just one commandment, you're guilty, and by your works you will be judged. So Paul asks four questions to expose the truth. And I think these are very good questions, and we should learn how to ask similar questions as we share the gospel with those who think they are good enough to go to heaven. If they're sure that they're a good person, then we can use the law to lead them to the cross. Paul asks the first question, Do you not teach yourself? Revealing the hypocrisy of these Bible teachers. Just because they say that they are good, doesn't mean that they are really good. Let's do a quick test and see whether you're good in the eyes of God, according to his law. The second question in Romans chapter 2 is, While you preach against stealing, do you steal? So is it wrong to steal in general? Yes, But let's apply it specifically. Do you steal? Have you ever stolen anything in your life? Regardless of the value, if you steal, you're a thief. It only takes one time murdering somebody to be a murderer. Romans 2 verse 22. The third question. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now remember what Jesus taught about this commandment. You've heard it's written, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Have you ever looked with lust? If so, are you innocent or guilty according to God's law? Guilty, and if guilty and God is a good judge, would he have to punish you in hell? Or can he just let you into heaven? No, you will go to hell. You see, it's not enough to know that you shouldn't commit adultery. If you do commit adultery, then your works condemn you. But remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, and people brought her to Jesus and said the law demands that we stone her. What do you say? And Jesus didn't say anything at first. He knelt down and he started writing in the sand. We don't know what exactly he was writing. Perhaps he was writing the other commandments with his finger in the sand. And one by one, they all started looking at what he was writing. And and Jesus stood up and said, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they all started to leave until there was no one left but Jesus and this woman. And he said to her, Does no one condemn you? Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. We learn a lot from this story. We learn that we're all sinners and that none of us has the right to cast the first stone. But Jesus is the one who is without sin. He had the right to cast the first stone, but he did not come in his first coming to judge the world. The world was already condemned. He came to save the world. We broke God's law, but Jesus paid our fine. And in his wisdom and power and love, He went to the cross, took upon Himself our sin, our guilt, our shame, our punishment, the wrath of God, and finally declared, it is finished, so that on the day of judgment He sees that our punishment has been paid, if we trust in Christ, that He died for our sins and rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell. So that if you trust in Christ, your faith is counted as righteousness. That's the good news.
1: What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can
0: make me
1: whole again?
0: Nothing but
1: the blood of Jesus.
0: So let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 2 and begin reading from verse 24. Through 29, and then we will begin our Bible study verse by verse. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 2 verse 24 through 29. The key phrase here is in verse 29, a matter of the heart. So this time, we're going to consider the matter of the heart. And Paul specifically speaks about circumcision as a matter of the heart, not a matter of outward righteousness from what man can do but as a matter of inward righteousness what only God can do by his spirit in our hearts so let's study verse by verse starting in verse 24 for as it is written the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you you see the Jews were called to honor God they were given the law of God but the effect of breaking the law is not only that you're guilty and condemned by the law but the problem with breaking the law is that it dis honors God. You are dishonoring God when you break the law. But not only are you dishonoring God, but you cause others to dishonor God. That's why it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now the name of God is to be honored. The third commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for God will not hold you guiltless who take his name in vain. You shouldn't use the name of God lightly or loosely. You should revere the name of God and teach others to honor his name. But when we break the law, we set an example of dishonoring the, the law. Disobedience to God's law results in dishonoring God's name. And when so-called believers live in sin, they not only bring shame upon themselves, but they bring shame upon the Lord and upon the faith that they profess to belong to. Do you call yourself a Christian? Christian means belonging to Christ, having the character of Christ, like Christ. And when the world of non-believers looks at so-called Christians in the way that they behave, they say, well, your God doesn't make you any better than us. And they conclude falsely that our God is no better than other gods or having no gods at all. So they speak against God. My friends, this should not be. If you're going to use the name Christian, you need to bear the fruit of a Christian. The New Testament also speaks about our call to live differently than the world so that the world will learn to honor God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your father. Who is in heaven. The problem with the Jews Paul was speaking with was that they were not obedient from the heart. They were keeping the outward requirements of the law, but not the inward requirements. As Jesus said, they draw near to God with their lips, but with their hearts they are far from him. If the main purpose of our lives here on earth is to glorify God, it's a matter of the heart. So from verse 25 through 29, he addresses the outward form of circumcision and reminds us of the inward meaning. And this can also be a applied to baptism, which is an outward sign of an inward work. The Jews were given the seal of circumcision to confirm their covenant with God. But having failed on the heart level, God established a new covenant, and the seal of this covenant is baptism. But it's not the outward cleansing of the flesh that makes your heart right before God. It's if your heart is right before God that it will show on the outside by what you do. So as circumcision was one of the first steps of obedience that a Jew would take. Baptism is one of the first steps of obedience that a Christian should take. Paul says in Romans 2.25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's important to understand that circumcision was a part of the old covenant law. It was required for Jews who wanted to be right by keeping the law. But if you break one law, James says, then you're guilty of breaking all of it. It's as if you haven't been circumcised if you are a lawbreaker so not only can you not rely on the law as we saw last time but today we're seeing that we cannot rely on circumcision because it can become uncircumcision verse 26 so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the law speaking of Gentiles non-jews if they theoretically kept the principles of the law to love God and to love your neighbor Paul says will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision and this is how it applies to Christians we do not need to get circumcised to be saved, as the early church confirmed in Acts chapter 15 when they met about this question. God regards the uncircumcised as if they have kept the complete law if they are saved by grace through faith. Let's look at Acts chapter 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The question is, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And these Pharisees were basically saying that Gentiles need to become Jews before they can become Christians. So of course the apostles would dispute this. In verse 6 of Acts chapter 15, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he phrase the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In other words, God was saying I accept these people. I can place my Holy Spirit within them because they're no longer unclean. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Do you see that? How our hearts are cleansed? By faith. We can have clean hearts by faith. As Peter goes on to say in Acts 15:11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So they're checking the scriptures to see if this is so, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's quoting from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So that answered the question about do you need to be circumcised and keep all of the law of Moses to be saved? You know, in the law of Moses, there's not only the moral law, which is repeated in the New Testament, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not covet, honor your father and mother, do not worship other gods, and so on. However, there is also ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that were destined to perish. Circumcision is ceremonial. The other ceremonial laws of the Jews having to do with what kind of food they can eat and not eat, what kind of clothes they can wear and not not wear, what kind of haircuts they can have and not have, those are all ceremonial and outward. But there are supposed to be signs of an inward relationship with God. But since the relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer need the outward ceremonial laws that God gave to the Jews. Christians are under no obligation to keep the traditions and customs of the Jews in order to go to heaven. So going back to Romans chapter 2, verse 27, Paul continues, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. But as we interpret this, we need to Ask who is the one who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law? Is there anyone who has kept the law? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Because in Romans three verse nineteen and twenty, Paul concludes this section by saying, "Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul is not saying that." The there are Gentiles who have kept the whole law. He's saying there may be some non-believers that have broken less laws than some believers. If we're going by the law, we can easily point the finger at each other and say, you're guilty, you're condemned. For the true intent of the law is to show us our inward sinful nature. As Paul goes on to say in Romans, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So if you're calling yourself a Jew, you're born of Jewish ethnicity, you're not a Jew in the full sense of the word unless you're one inwardly, where you're not only circumcised outwardly, but your heart is circumcised, not by the hands of men, but by the Spirit of God, not by the written letter on tablets of stone, but by God himself who has written his law in your heart. Circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh, symbolic of the fleshly life that we're all tempted to live and we all have given into from time to time, but the character of a person who has been touched by the Spirit of God, who's been converted at the heart level. The character is one that is not fleshy, one who has denied themselves and taken up their cross and followed Christ, not by the power of the flesh, but by the spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the Jews had forgotten about this inward meaning of circumcision, but God had said it all along. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, 16 and chapter 30, verse 6, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. So the circumcision of the heart is coupled with no longer being stubborn. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So clearly, God is not looking at the outward appearance. He's looking at your heart and my heart. Have you been circumcised in your heart? Has the Lord done surgery on you, cutting away the fleshly life, fleshly desires that dominate you? Has he given you new desires. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jeremiah promised that in the new covenant, God would take out of us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a heart that loves God. But it's not by trying to keep the law and the religious practices of the Old Testament that we're saved. It's by trusting in Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Conquering sin, flesh, the devil, hell, and taking the wrath of God for us. So that his righteousness may be counted to us. If we believe in him, he'll see us as if we've never sinned. Because that's the righteousness of Christ. Nothing. sharing with you more of this good news as we get into Romans chapter
1: 3.
0: So let's turn in our Bibles and begin reading Romans chapter 3 and then we will study it verse by verse. Romans 3 verse 1 Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil, that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. In verse 1 through 8, Paul has a sort of dialogue with those who want to argue with his logic. The first question is, then what advantage has the Jew? Well, do they have any advantage? Of course, they have the advantage of having the law. And the second question is, or what is the value of circumcision? So the question of advantage and value is clear. Verse 2, Paul says, much in every way. And he begins listing some of the advantages to being a Jew. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Isn't that valuable? Certainly the oracles of God, the prophecies that God gave to the prophets that were written down through the history of Israel. God entrusted that to the Jews to preserve his word and to spread his word and to teach his word to their children. It's valuable to have God's word. But does that mean you're better off on Judgment Day? In verse 9, he says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. So Jews have an advantage and they have something valuable, but that doesn't mean that they're better off than the Gentiles. The Jews had something better because they had the law, but the Jews were not better than the Gentiles just because they had the law. The third question a skeptic would ask is Romans 3.3. What if some were unfaithful? You know, people will always throw these what if questions out at you when they don't understand what you're saying. But well, what if, uh, let's make up a hypothetical situation. What if only some of them were unfaithful? And Paul asks the question back, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If the Jews were unfaithful to keep their side of the covenant, does that mean that God is no longer going to be faithful to his side of the covenant? If people are unfaithful, does that make God unfaithful? No, he says in verse 4, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God wouldn't be God if he was a liar, and even if everyone on earth is a liar. God would still be true. Otherwise, how would he judge the world? As it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is justified in his words and God prevails when he judges because he himself is righteous. Here's where our concept of God should be lifted up. God is not a man that he should repent. Did you know that Mormons believe that God was a man just like us? It's possible that he was a sinner and then he overcame his sin and was exalted to the state of godhood. Mormons are hoping to become a god themselves. That is heresy, blasphemy, and paganism. Mormonism is not a monotheistic Christian religion. It's a polytheistic pagan cult. Otherwise, how could God be justified in his words if he was earlier condemned as a liar? How could God prevail when people try to judge him? No, God is the righteous judge. And people try to argue and say, well, what about all the evil in the world. Doesn't that make God unjust? No, it shows that all of us are unjust. There will come a judgment day when God judges and makes everything right. But until then, you're free to choose to do good or to do evil. And we do find that all have told lies. And what does that make us? Liars. The next question the skeptic would ask is in Romans 3, 5. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul's explaining this is an argument that he's heard as he's preaching the gospel on the streets. Well, I'm doing God a favor by making him look good in comparison with how bad I am. If I'm doing God a favor and making him look good, then why would he punish me? That's human logic, and it breaks down. As Paul says in verse 6, By no means, for how then could God judge the world? If God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on criminals, then you're turning justice upside down. You're calling good evil and evil good. That's what all of these skeptical arguments boil down to. You see, people would rather argue that God is evil and they are good than to admit the truth that they are evil and God is good. But that's the first thing you need to admit. God is holy, 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 but woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We need to pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You cannot argue your case on judgment day, and you're certainly not justified by condemning the judge. God will judge the world, and he can do that because he's a good judge. Verse 7, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Again, it's the comparison, I make God look good. People think that should take away their sins, that it sort of cancels out, but it's wrong. Interestingly, God will get the glory in the end when he condemns liars. God's truth will abound to his glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Romans 3.8, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul quotes a straw man argument. Do you know what a straw man argument is? When somebody is trying to defend their position against another position, they will usually mischaracterize that other position, build a sort of straw man and say, that's your position and then knock it down. It's easy to do that. When you mischaracterize the gospel as Jesus died so that you can sin, that's a straw man argument. Some people were slandering Paul and saying that Paul's position is basically, let's do evil so that good may come. It's not really what Christianity teaches. But how many Christians today think that the end justifies the means? They think that it's okay to do something wrong if it has a good result. For example, people may argue, well, if I tell someone the truth, it will hurt them. But if I lie to them, it will make them feel better. So it's good to lie to them. No, no, no. A thousand times no. The end does not justify the means. It's never right to lie. It's not good to do evil. That's basic to Christianity and to the truth. But people will slanderously charge us with saying things that we never said. And people have slandered me by charging me with saying things I've never said. If you hear something secondhand from someone else saying, oh, I heard him say this and that, and oh, isn't that wrong? But how do you know that that was what the person actually said? See, slander is hurtful. Slander is when you say something false about somebody that makes them look bad and destroys their name. And as preachers of the gospel, we're going to be slandered. We're going to be charged with saying things that are wrong. That's why you should always check out what the preacher is actually saying and compare it with scripture. If all men are liars, don't be surprised if somebody lies about those who are preaching the gospel. And if I or another preacher of the gospel has said something wrong, in a public forum, then we should publicly apologize. If we said something wrong privately to somebody, then we should go to that person privately and say, forgive me, I shouldn't have said that. And if someone has said something wrong to you, or you are interpreting it wrongly, you should go to that one person, instead of slandering them by telling everyone else what you thought that that person meant. Stop building straw man arguments against the gospel and those who preach the gospel and start confessing your own sin and turning from it, asking Jesus to cleanse you and make you new. That's your only hope. Stop seeking to justify yourself. Paul says at the end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. God will condemn those who slander the gospel. So in Romans 3.9, Paul goes on to say, what then? What's the conclusion then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul was a Jew and he said, though we have these advantages of the law and traditions, does that make us better off before God? His answer, no, not at all. Jews are not better off than Gentiles when it comes to keeping the law. You're either guilty or not guilty and we're all guilty. As he says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. So you picture two columns. At the top of one column is sin. Under that title is all people. We have all sinned. The other column is without sin. Who's in that column? Only Jesus Christ was without sin. But all of us have sinned. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So right here, we should stop declaring, I'm a good person. I am righteous by my works. No, Paul is dealing with All people, on the basis of works, according to the law, no one is righteous. How many ways can he say it? All are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. It would be right to understand and and to seek for God. The problem is no one does that. No one naturally understands, and no one naturally seeks for God. That's why Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You can't even come to Jesus without the Father drawing you. You can't even believe in Jesus unless that's a gift from God. So don't boast that you're better than other people because, oh, I was seeking God so much and I found him. No, you were lost and God sought you and he found you. God is not lost. He's everywhere and we could reach out and find him. But it's only him that can open our eyes to see that. So this whole movement called the seeker-friendly movement or seeker-sensitive movement is not based on scripture. See, if you have a service for seekers thinking, well, there's people out there, they're seeking God naturally. They're, you know, they want to know the truth about God. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says no one seeks after God. So why are we having a service in the church for seekers? A church service is to serve God not to serve unbelievers. And the seeker-friendly movement is really seeking to draw people to what they're already seeking, which is happiness, wealth, having greener grass, more satisfying marriages, kids that obey you, better jobs, more influence in the world. These are things that the Gentiles are seeking food and drink and clothes. The church can offer these things, but you're leading people to the things that you're offering, not leading them to God. So don't think that the seeker-friendly movement is a biblical movement. David Wilkerson calls it a sinner-friendly movement. But James says, he who seeks to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The problem in seeker-friendly churches is that they're so concerned about making the lost feel comfortable in the church that they don't mention the problem of sin or the danger of judgment. the solution of the blood of christ or the very real wrath of god against sin they think that if you make a seeker feel comfortable he'll naturally seek after god and find him no we need to be more confrontational because no one seeks after god jesus said i came to seek and to save that which is lost he's the seeker and if you're going to be sensitive to anyone be sensitive to god great his love is for us he took the punishment that we deserve the blood of Jesus Christ had to be shed to take away our sin is, the blood of Jesus. is Jesus calling you saying confess your sins repent turn from going astray come to me and I will give you rest come and I will give you eternal life Call upon me, and you will be saved. Isn't that good news? I look forward to sharing with you more of this good news. Next time, my name is Brenton Powers. Have you ever wondered, how can anyone be justified? How can anyone be saved? How can we be accepted? If we are terrible sinners, and God is a righteous judge, then is there any way for us to be accepted by Him and not condemned by Him? To be declared righteous? It's almost too wonderful to imagine. But that is indeed the good news that Paul explains in these verses, how the gospel works. I'd like to give this section the title, The Righteousness of God Through Faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 31. Let's read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 31. I'd like to give this section the title, The Righteousness of God Through Faith. In this section, we'll see the scriptural basis for the five solas of the Protestant Reformation which are still to this day the position of evangelical Christians concerning not only our theology, but our relationship with God. This is the basis upon which we have a relationship with God. First sola is sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Secondly, sola fide, by faith alone. Third, sola gratia, by grace alone. Fourth, solus Christus, in Christ alone. Fifth, soli Deo gloria, glory to God alone. All five of these solas can be demonstrated from these verses that we'll study today as being foundational for the life and faith of the church. Not only for a reformation of church doctrine and practice, but also for our own personal relationship with God and how we live day to day. And so based on scripture alone, not on the popular teachings of the day, but based upon the Word of God, we can know how to be saved. So this is very important, and I encourage all of you to pay very close attention to this good news. Notice, first of all, the main theme of these verses returns to Paul's main theme that he announced in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and that is the righteousness of God. Let's compare these verses, Romans one seventeen. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now skipping forward to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets were the Old Testament scriptures. Of course, Paul is writing the New Testament scriptures. See, if God reveals something to us, and here His righteousness is being revealed in the gospel, then we can know His righteousness. We can experience it. We can receive it. God is able to reveal things to us in a way that we can receive. And my hope today, I'll tell you from the beginning, is that you will receive the righteousness of God. As I preach the gospel to you, these truths will be clear to your mind, and that you would put your faith in Christ alone, to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and give glory to God alone, based on the scripture alone. Because that alone is the basis for your relationship with God and your assurance that He indeed accepts you. But if you put your faith in men, church councils, religiousness, your own works, your own merit, or the merit of other saints, you can have no assurance of salvation. How sad that is. So I want to speak to you who are always struggling under the weight of your sin and guilt. The law of God has done its work in showing you that you deserve to be condemned. But now you're wondering, how can I be accepted? I try to be good, but I fail. Why can't I change? How does this gospel work? How can God be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus? What did God do to save us? And Then how do I receive that good news? How do I apply it to my life? Paul has painted a dark picture showing us the background of human nature. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. But in contrast to that, we're going to see the good news of the gospel. You see, you had to understand the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. You had to see the problem before you can understand the solution. You had to see the sickness before you can appreciate the cure. And tonight, we will discover how the cure works. How Christ worked to save you and to save me from our sins. But we must respond by receiving this gift by faith. It's on that basis and that basis alone that we can be right with God. So, he says, but now there's a righteousness of God. It's possible to receive the righteousness of God, to have His righteousness be counted to us, to have the, the merit of Christ be reckoned to us through faith. So let's study it verse by verse and draw out of it the truths of the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now, when? After we've tried by the law to to be right and failed. After we've seen that there's no difference between the religious man and irreligious man as far as our standing before God, after we've realized we can never attain to the righteousness of God by our works, when we give up, seeking to establish our own righteousness, and we look up for hope, now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means made known, revealed. How has it been revealed? Apart from the law, not in contradiction to the law, but through another avenue. The law shows us what is right, but it's unable to make us right. God Himself came down from heaven to earth in the form of a man. To make us right with him. What the law could not do weak as it was because of our flesh, God did in sending his own Son. So God's revealed his righteousness that it's available to us not through the law but through another way, although he adds the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You can find parts of this gospel being preached in the law of Moses between Genesis through Deuteronomy, in the writings of the prophets, Of Israel, the early prophets to the later prophets, they all testified to the gospel of the righteousness of God given to all who believe. And Paul will demonstrate this in the following chapters. But the key here is God's righteousness is available to us according to the scriptures. God doesn't contradict himself in any way. And so we can know this based on scripture alone, now that we have the completed canon of Old Testament and New Testament. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is in a nutshell. God gives His righteousness. The righteousness of God is received through faith. Not through the law, but through faith, which is trust, confidence, clinging to, depending upon. But faith needs an object. We don't put our faith in faith. We don't trust faith we put our faith in christ not just believing that he exists even satan believes that jesus exists we trust in what he did we depend upon his finished work his fulfillment of the law in his life in his death and burial and resurrection and through faith we receive the righteousness of god that was in christ jesus It's by faith alone without the addition of your works. It's through Christ alone without you or anyone else needing to help him. And then he'll add that it's by grace alone. Look at verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that? He says that all believers have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not by their works, but they're justified by His grace as a gift. Grace is when you receive God's unmerited favor at Christ's expense. He paid the price, and He offers it to you as a gift. You don't have to earn it, and if you tried to earn it, it would no longer be a gift. It would be wages but he gives you his righteousness as a gift on the condition that you believe now your faith is not a work your faith does not merit this gift it's based upon god's grace through faith in christ alone Notice how it works in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he says it twice. This is to show God's righteousness. How did God show his righteousness? How did he reveal his righteousness in the gospel? Well, let's remember what the gospel message is. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how it's connected to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus connected to the propitiation by his blood, that is, the death of Christ for our sins. As Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first main point of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. In other words, the suffering and And death of Christ, being punished for crimes he didn't commit, was to pay the punishment for our sins that we committed. Think about that. Christ died for our sins. The worthy for the unworthy. What a gift. What grace. What love. What a sacrifice. He paid our fine in his life's blood. As the Bible says, "...without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins." So how can a righteous judge let a criminal go free and still be righteous? Well, if the judge took the place of the criminal and he shed his blood in the place of the criminal's blood, in other words, died instead of him, then the criminal would be counted as dead. The punishment is paid, justice served, and God's wrath satisfied. Let me explain that. God is angry at sin and he has to punish by pouring out his anger and wrath. But as his hand of judgment was about to fall on you, he himself stepped in the way and received the blow, drank the cup of his own wrath. See, he had to receive all the wrath of God in order to save all who believe. Otherwise, justice wouldn't have been dealt for those who believe there would still be a debt to pay. But he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And he loved us and demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're seeing that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel according to the scriptures and that it's by faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus alone, and for the glory of God alone. So in the good news of Jesus Christ, we see that there is hope. There is a way for lost, condemned sinners to receive the righteousness of God and therefore be found, forgiven, and justified. So we'll study more about that next week. What can make me
1: whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
0: For more, go to dwellontruth.org. Well on Truth Is kindly sponsored by Top Grade Paving And from Santa Cruz Said on Yelp Robert and his crew Did a great job On our private road What I loved about Working with Robert Was his attention To communication And follow through We have a private road With a lot of different Parties involved And he was patient And dealt with the ups And downs of trying To keep all parties happy He kept us informed Of how the process Would work And then got each area Done on time The main paving On a steep section Of our road Is perfect And the separate patching The two speed bumps they installed and paving on the three private drives were all done with a minimum of disruption and were completed ahead of schedule add this to the quality of work and the fairness of price and you have a winning combination if you need paving robert and crew will get the job done right schedule now before he gets too busy as the word spreads more information is at topgradepaving.com or call robert at 408-455-8723 that's 408-455-8723 and thank you robert for sponsoring dwell on Truth.